Hi, I'm Dr. Suresh Kawadka, and I'm a GP and board certified lifestyle physician. I'm the host of the popular Meet Medic podcast on audio podcast and on YouTube. And I'm an author of eBooks, but it still counts. Uh, I'm a host of YouTube channel, as I said, and I receive around 30 to 50,000 views per month. Uh, if you Google the Meet Medic, then you will find me. Now today, I don't have much to declare. Uh, I'm an author and a podcaster, like I said, I've got health courses available and I'm a doctor that likes to cure people and likes to de-prescribe and get away from drugs. So yeah, drug companies don't like me, but that's pretty much all I have to declare. Now, a little bit about myself. Uh, I was born and raised in the UK, uh, moved to Australia around four and a half years ago. And just like most people, I've had my own personal health journey. I've had obesity, I've had impaired glucose tolerance, I've had sugar and food addiction, and I think I still do. And really like everybody else, you know, I've tried every diet going, I've tried everything out there, all of which of course have failed horribly. Just to show you what I used to look like, picture on the left is what I used to look like. That was only taken about four years ago. And the picture on the right, <laughs> silly picture I know, but it was taken only a few weeks ago. As you can see, there's quite a little bit of difference there in my face. And uh, today I am talking to you about why meat is so essential and why it is an essential part of the human diet. Those of you who know me already, of course, you'll know that I follow a carnivore diet. And I've been doing this now for about nine months at the time of recording this episode. But what is a carnivore diet? Well, first off, I prefer the word framework rather than diet because the word diet just has such a negative connotation. Uh, simply put though, I mean, a carnivore diet is a diet comprising of almost entirely animal products with the vast majority actually coming from red meat. Now, most carnivores can eat eggs as well, of course, uh, in varying amounts. Some might include fish, seafood, other meats like chicken and pork as well, but predominantly it's red meat, predominantly it's actually beef. Now, the other thing we're doing is almost entirely avoiding plant materials like fruit and veg, which I know sounds odd because we are always told that we should eat these things, but there's actually a very good reason why we're actually avoiding a lot of this. Now, this is because plants have toxins. They have these chemical defenses. Now, let's look at an animal, cow in this picture. Unlike you or I, uh, cows and chickens, you know, etc., plants can't run away. So if something tries to eat a cow, for example, it can bite, it can kick, it can run away, get help from the rest of the herd, etc. And it's probably going to do some damage to you if you go and try to take a cow, bite out of a cow's bum. But a plant, it can't. A plant just basically sits there and takes it. It can't do anything. And it's got no way of defending itself. It can't really kick. It can't bite. It can't, you know, run away. Uh, it can scream. Plants do scream, actually, but not really audible to human beings. Uh, so what do plants do? Like nothing wants to die, uh, despite what a lot of people think out there. Nothing really on this planet has actually been put there for solely our human consumption. Plants don't want to die, just like everything else. Everything wants to live in nature. Everything wants to be alive, to reproduce, pass on its genes and survive. That's basically the meaning of life for pretty much everything on the planet. So plants have these ways of defending themselves. Now they don't have kinetic defense like animals do. So they have to have these chemical defenses to basically stop things eating them. If something doesn't taste right, if it doesn't taste good, if it makes you ill, if you eat it, you're less likely to eat it. 
Now, the problem is most of the planet knows this. There are other, other you know, animals out there. They eat the wrong plants. They get sick. They die. They know <laughs> do not eat those plants. But human beings in our infinite wisdom, we think we know better than everything else on the planet. And we kind of have learned to really just ignore a lot of these toxic uh, chemicals, a lot of these, these toxic issues that we have. And we put it down to other things and we just forget that actually it might be because of the plants. Now, as I said, despite what a lot of people think, you know, plants are not designed for human beings to just consume at will. In fact, it's estimated around less than maybe 1% of the world's plants are actually edible by human beings. I think that probably means that not everything is put on this planet for us. I mean, quite literally less than 1%. Yet, of course, conventional medicine and modern you know, dietary guidelines completely ignores this and basically ignores these chemical defenses and just says, well, all plants are amazing. Now, this is really a form of reverse reductionism. Uh, you know, reductionism, of course, saying, well, there's one thing that's bad about something, therefore it's bad, like they say with meat. But this is like a reverse reductionism where they're saying, well, there's a few, maybe one good thing in vegetables and plants, therefore plants are good, and completely ignoring everything else that's maybe bad about them. Now, we're constantly told that plants are the savior of mankind, and we should be doing all we can to eat as much plants as possible, and we should not eat any meat because it's really, really terrible for us. Now, I'm going to tell you today why that is actually just not the case. Now, a little bit about the carnivore diet, though, in its background. I think it gives a good idea of the background of meat. Now, like any good diet, any good framework, I should say, we're avoiding processed food, we're avoiding chemicals, we're avoiding additives, and we're avoiding toxins. And the, the carnivore diet is a ketogenic diet at its heart. So all the benefits of a ketogenic diet and more. Now, carnivore diet used to be really, really referred to as a zero-carb diet, and it's been knocking around, you know, for around 20 or 30 years on you know, various Facebook groups and internet groups and so on. Um, but it's actually been done for probably the last couple of hundred years, even actually by doctors. Um, people that, that know me will know I talk about Dr. James Salisbury, and he's probably one of the originals, although there probably was many people before him. And uh, he was the inventor of the Salisbury steak, uh, if you want to go and look that up. And, and he really believed that many diseases that we suffer with nowadays, I mean, he was 150 odd years ago, but he believed that a lot of these diseases were caused by plants. And actually curing people meant taking out those plant-based materials and just giving them the meat. And he was basically curing incurable conditions, you know, 150 years ago, which is just absolutely incredible. Yet, for whatever reason, it just never really took off. Now, today's focus of the talk isn't really on the carnivore diet, but I think it's useful to give you a little bit of a background. If anyone out there is interested in learning more, I do have guides available on my website, themeatmedic.com. Make sure you check those out. Anyway, let's get back to the rest of the talk and why meat is essential. I want to go back a little bit, if I can, to the beginning. Okay, so mankind, Homo sapiens, we have been eating meat since the dawn of our evolution. The consumption of meat has played an absolutely vital role in the development of early, early human beings and their survival. While the exact time frames are unknown, we do have evidence that suggests our ancestors began eating meat probably at least around two and a half to 2.6, maybe even 3 million years ago, and we've been eating it absolutely ever since. Frankly, the idea of having to like prove, you know, I'm doing this talk saying these are all the benefits of meat, 
The idea of having to even say that meat is good for us when we've been eating it for two and a half million years is absolutely absurd. But yet, here we are. So, the earliest evidence of meat consumption uh, comes from archaeological sites around the world where stone tools have been found uh, alongside remains of animal bones, which they've shown signs of, you know, being cut, butchery, uh, and these kind of things. Uh, these sites, such as the uh, Oldivai Gorge in, Tasmania, in, in Tanzania sorry, and Gona in Ethiopia, uh, can provide valuable insights actually into our ancestors' diet. We know that they were eating meat. Early humans... Uh, such as Homo habilis and Homo erectus, uh, prior to Homo sapiens, of course. Uh, these likely didn't hunt for meat, but they did likely scavenge for meat, uh, relying on animal remains, of course, you know, killed by other animals and then and then left to rot their carcasses and so on. We know this uh, for a number of reasons, but it's very likely to be true because of the human being's stomach uh, pH. It's incredibly low which is really very, very squarely in the realms of scavenger animals like vultures and hyenas. A bit more about our evolution. So at some point, you know, in our evolution, human beings, basically, we actually learned to crack open, you know, the, the heads, the skulls of animals, the dead animals on the ground. And we managed to get their brains. Now, most animals couldn't access the brains uh, because they just they didn't have the tools uh, to, to get into the, to the skull. The skull is very, very strong. But human beings, at some point, our ancestors learned how to smash things with rocks, I suppose, or other large instruments. And we managed to then get the brains. Um, now, the brains were full of fat, and this is incredibly important. The consumption of fat, uh, including the consumption of brains, and probably pr predominantly the brains, uh, by early humans likely played a very significant role in their development in several, several ways. The exact impact is difficult to determine, of course, but there are a few hypotheses. So number one, the nutritional benefits. Animal brains, particularly those of large animals, contain very high levels of fat. We know that, like human beings, we've got 60% cholesterol. Our brain is 60% cholesterol. Uh, they contain very high levels of fat and certain nutrients essential for brain development, such as the omega-3 fatty acids, DHA, and so on. The consumption of these nutrient-dense foods may have provided early humans with a concentrated source of energy, Vital nutrients supporting brain growth and cognitive development. Very, very important. The increased caloric intake also from fat. Fat is a very dense source of calories. We know this. You go back to medical school. In fact, pretty much the only thing I can remember being taught about nutrition in medical school, it's shocking, I know, was that fat contains around nine calories per gram. That's pretty much all I was ever taught about nutrition. Uh, incorporating fat-rich fat foods into the diet likely would have provided humans, early humans with vast increases in caloric energy, uh, which meant they could obviously grow more muscle, brain development, etc. Likely this would have been very advantageous, of course, when food was very scarce or unpredictable in times, you know, sustaining our energy levels and supporting our survival, of course. Um, there's also theories that maybe around social and cultural practices uh, that, that the sharing of these very high value foods, you know, basically the fatty foods, you know, why actually incidentally it's called rich food when it's very fatty because the fat was very good for you and the only rich people could afford the fat. Um, sharing these kind of really scarce, uh, really high important uh, resources likely would have meant that early humans actually fostered this kind of cooperation and strength in, in, in their social bonds. 
and this likely contributed to the formation and maintenance of complex social networks, leading to increased cooperation, improvements in hunting, gathering, other activities that of course needed that group effort, and of course facilitated human development. So, fueled, of course, by this newfound source of amazing nutrition in meat, over time, our brain developments grew and our ancestors developed more and more advanced hunting techniques to bring down these big animals. They began actively hunting and killing animals for food, which, of course, shifted, shifted and this, this shift allowed for a much more consistent and reliable source of food, in particular, of course, meat. Now, as human societies evolved, meat consumption became more widespread and more diverse, and it's played a very crucial role in the diets of a lot of ancient civilizations, including Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, and so on. Meat consumption also varies, of course, across cultures, uh, religions, of course, as well, depending on other factors, geographical location, availability of the meat, uh, cultural practices, religious beliefs, and so on. Uh, it is important to note, of course, that throughout history, meat consumption has uh, varied in the extent and frequency because of factors like economic status. I mentioned, of course, rich food. Poor people couldn't generally afford the meat. Uh, interestingly, they were the ones that were given the grains. Um, the privileged few, as I said, were ac accessed, you know, to those to those meat, to the fat in particular. Um, but in some places, you know, it did form actually a majority of the diet. Um, I would mention, of course, this is where the term rich food uh, comes from. Um, interestingly, in religion, of course, there is some references to meat. And uh, if there's two things, you know, sure to cause conflict, and I very rarely talk about them, it's politics and religion. Um, I try not to really talk about either one in my consultation because it leads to problems. But it's sometimes worth reflecting on a little bit how something like meat has featured in our lives over the years. And of course, religion is a big part of that for a lot of people, and it has been indeed over the last few thousand years. Uh, many religions actually, and cultures of course, celebrate the consumption of meat. So it's likely that we we knew that meat was not bad for us. Um, there's references to slaughtering of animals, the sacrifice and sharing meat as family pretty much across the board when it comes to religious texts. And these have potentially been around for thousands of years. Uh, when we look at specific religions, of course, there can be other anecdotes there that people following the carnivore diet will tell you they actually just feel better on certain types of food. Uh, for example, uh, you know, people will tell you they feel the best on things like beef, uh, other ruminant animals, uh, maybe, and just not as good on other animals like like pork and chicken. Uh, now, this actually we can see in some religious texts, there are some uh, anecdotes here that might mirror it. So, for example, in Judaism, uh, kosher meat must come from animals that chew the cud and have cloven hooves. I mean, basically, this is ruminant animals. Uh, certain types of meat, such as pork and shellfish, in this example, are considered unclean and forbidden. And of course, for Muslims, pork is also forbidden as well. Now, could that be that this is because uh, these foods are maybe just not as good for us? And maybe this is why people feel better when they don't eat those and they eat the beef instead. Uh, possibly. Now, that might be a reach, of course. But yeah, coincidence, I'm not sure I believe much in coincidences anymore. Uh, now, of course, you could argue, well, maybe Hinduism is different. And Hinduism states, of course, that we shouldn't eat beef, that cows are sacred. Uh, and Hinduism is, you know, predominantly actually a vegetarian uh, culture. But there are some out there that believe, um, and I do believe Dr. Pran uh, Yaganathan, if anybody knows about him out there, and if he watches this video, please look, get in touch and let me know if I'm wrong. I apologize if I'm wrong. Um, some people out there believe actually that if you go back far enough to uh, pre-colonial days, um, Hindus actually ate beef, and maybe they actually celebrated 
beef and cows because they realized how good they were for them in terms of eating them. And they actually only really changed their diet when they were forced to by, by British invasion, when they actually took a lot of the good food away and left them with the grains. Um, culture, of course, I've mentioned. Uh, religion is a big part of culture, of course, uh, but culture exists outside of religion as well. Um, think about any time you've like gone to a party, a gathering, you know, probably a barbecue, uh, you know, here in Australia, particularly, you know, you're going to feast on meat. You know, nobody goes to a barbecue and says, oh, can I have some coleslaw? No, nobody goes to a barbecue for the salad. You know, there's always that like obligatory bowl of salad that's, that's there still, still, still sitting on the side that really no one's ever touched. You know, there's a reason for this. You know, you go out to a restaurant. You go and look at the menu and you think, oh, what what meat do I want today? And then you just get whatever comes with it. You don't kind of go to a restaurant and go, you know what? I really want spinach today. I wonder what meat comes with these potatoes. I really want potatoes today. Like, you know, you don't do that. You go, okay, what beef do I want? What steak do I want? That's what you go for. What is meat? Well, to understand why meat is essential for humans, we kind of have to actually know what meat actually is. Now, this might sound like a silly question, but how many people out there actually know what meat is when it comes to the definition? Many people mistakenly synonymize it with protein. Now, meat is protein, of course. It contains protein, I should say, but it's so much more than protein. Now, meat can be broadly broken down into two categories, organ meats, and muscle meats. Fairly straightforward. Organ meats refer to organs such as liver, kidney, heart, brain, and muscle meat refers to just everything else. Most of us, we're pretty used to eating muscle meats. Steak, chicken, minced beef, roast dinner, for example. These are all muscle meats. I want to talk a little bit about organ meats though first. Now, many people don't actually enjoy the taste of organ meats. Some people do. Um, and uh, I actually did a recent video on my podcast, uh, episode of my podcast about carnivore Q&A about organ meats. Definitely check that out if you haven't seen that one. A lot of people are saying, you know, they actually do like the taste of liver, which is interesting. Um, organs such as liver, heart, brain, spleen, thymus, these are absolute powerhouses of nutrition. There's really no doubt about it. Uh, they do contain a vast array of minerals, vitamins, uh, other nutrients, of course, which many of which are essential for human life. Now, touted by some as essential uh, organs, they actually aren't essential. We don't have to eat them. Uh, but some people do eat organs like liver. They're regularly consumed by some people because of the abundance of these uh, nutrition, basically. And you can see from the infographic on the screen here. Um, now, it should be noted, though, of course, that you can have too much of a good thing. And liver is very large, usually in vitamin A. Um, excuse me if I go between vitamin and vitamin, I'm still kind of tra transitioning in my Australian lingo. Uh, now, vitamin A buildup can be deadly. Uh, it's pretty uncommon that it happens, but it is potentially uh, possible. Most of us know that vitamin A is also teratogenic. Uh, that means it can harm a growing fetus. So again, vitamin A can actually be an issue. Beef liver particularly contains a lot of vitamin A. Interestingly, chicken liver is a lot lower in vitamin A. So if you are going to eat liver, I'd actually recommend chicken liver. Uh, muscle meat, of course, is still absolutely full of nutrition. It's a lot more than just protein. Again, you can see on the screen here, this is a fantastic infographic again from Nutrition with Judy. Make sure you check out her channel, of course. Um, again, if we look at this picture, there's so much more to this ribeye than just 
protein. There's so much more in it. There's loads of minerals, loads of vitamins, loads of nutrients that we need for human life. Now, another thing that muscle meat, of course, or meat in general has is the fat. It's not just protein. There's far more to it than just protein. Fat is a major, major component of meat and one that we really do need. Now, hopefully, most people listening to this, most people out there watching this, listening to this, will understand the importance of fat, but I'll reiterate it nonetheless. Fat plays a crucial role in the body. And as I previously mentioned, it's likely to be what's fueled the majority of our evolutionary brain development and as a human species, our evolution. Fat plays a number of crucial roles within the body and is absolutely essential for overall health and well-being. Now, here's just some of the reasons why it's important. Energy source. So fat is a very concentrated energy source, as I mentioned, at least nine or roughly nine grams uh, calories per gram of fat. We, when we consume more calories than we immediately need, that excess energy can be stored in the form of fat. Now, that's mostly carbohydrates that go to fat, but that's an aside. During periods, of course, of fasting or you know low intake, food scarcity, etc., we can break down fats to provide the energy for us to 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 use to run on in ketosis. Um, fat also contains, or sorry, rather helps nutrient absorption. So certain vitamins like uh, vitamin A, D, E, and K, these are fat soluble, meaning they require fat to actually be essentially absorbed into the body and actually then utilized, sort of taking up, utilized within the body. If you don't have enough fat, these actually can't get into your system and can't be used, which is, of course, very bad. Now, it might sound silly, but fat also provides insulation and protection. And uh, this is actually quite important. It actually provides vital padding around the organs. You may have heard of, um, uh, you know, this term visceral fat. Uh, visceral fat is kind of really the fat around your organs. Now, in excess, this is very dangerous for us. But actually, if it's too low, this is actually quite bad for us as well, because those organs actually need protecting and the fat layer around them actually does protect them. Now, of course, excess adipose tissue around the organs can be dangerous, but otherwise excess adipose tissue around the body look, potentially does give us some actual defense as well from you know, it's being attacked by animals and I suppose other people as well. Um, it can act as a thermal insulator uh, as well, which can somewhat help to regulate body temperature. Uh, interestingly, although studies show that actually being overweight tends to reduce your regulation of body temperature, so maybe it isn't quite accurate, but also brown fat, of course, which is a different type of adipose tissue, different type of fat to white fat, also is very much involved in temperature regulation. Uh, hormone production. So fats are involved in the production of a lot of hormones within the body. Pretty much all of the hormones we have in the body are just mostly, mostly fat but particularly our sex hormones. If you're not eating enough fat, you are not going to get enough sex hormones, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, and so on. All of the other hormones like cortisol and even certain vitamins like vitamin D are actually derived from cortisol, which is a type of fat. Um, cell structure and function. Now, some people know this, some people don't. Fat is a vital component of cell membranes. Without fat, I mean, basically your cells just literally they just, they just disintegrate. Fat and cholesterol particularly really actually makes up the vast majority of your cell membrane, actually holding your whole body together. It's also really important for cell signaling and cell functioning and allowing those nutrients to come in and out of the cell. 
and it allows waste products to also leave the cell. So without fat, we can't get anything in and we can't get anything out. And this is very, very bad for us. Um, fat also plays a role in places like nerves, like in myelin, the myelin sheath that we lose uh, typically when we have conditions like uh, multiple sclerosis, for example. That myelin sheath is actually majority fat and large amounts of dietary fat can actually help those nerves to function, potentially even regenerate, which is incredible. And there's all sorts of stories about people following high-fat ketogenic carnivore diets, actually further, you know, recovering from stroke, even decades after a stroke, which is absolutely incredible. Um, now, fat also gives us satiety, makes us feel full, and it gives us flavor to our food. Now, you could argue flavor isn't really essential, but, you know, it's bloody nice to have a nice steak. <laughs> Um, including, you know, moderate, moderate, I mean, moderate amounts of dietary fat, I would say high amounts of dietary fat, you know, it can really contribute to a feeling of satiety, which helps to, of course, curb excessive hunger, snacking, overeating, and so on. As we said, fat really adds flavor and texture to a food as well, which just, it's nice to eat enjoyable food. Uh, fat can be broken down, of course, into saturated fat and unsaturated fat which is further broken down again into polyunsaturated fat and monounsaturated fats. Now, we are frequently told that saturated fat is bad for us, but is that really the case? Now, this all comes from the very widely, unfortunately, held myth that cholesterol causes heart disease. Now, it doesn't, basically, but cholesterol is essential to our body. It really doesn't make any sense that something that is essential for our body, something inherent within our body, that we've been eating for two and a half million years is somehow bad for us. That really doesn't make any sense at all. This all comes from around, what, 50, 60 years ago, what we call the diet heart hypothesis. And uh, this was started by this guy, Ansel Keys, and essentially funded by the Sugar Research Foundation to push the agenda that sugar is good for us, basically. Uh, sugar, or rather, sugar is not bad, and we shouldn't worry about sugar, and that fat is bad. You know, they had to basically have a, had a scapegoat for all of the problems that people were facing, and fat was a really good scapegoat. So he was essentially paid to fabricate almost virtually evidence that fat was bad and that sugar was good. So this has been around for a long time, but what are some of the benefits of saturated fat? Because they're not bad for us. So as I said, nutrient absorption, uh, saturated fats help in the absorption of things like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin K, and of course, other nutrients as well. Now, consuming, as we said, these can also help then other things get into the body. Cell structure and integrity, we've spoke about that one already, of course. Uh, hormone production, we've mentioned that as well. Um, brain health. Now, I mentioned earlier that the brain is approximately 60% cholesterol by volume around about 24% of your total body, your body's total cholesterol is actually in your brain. Now think about this for a moment. Why would it be bad to have high levels of a substance that makes up the vast majority of your brain? That actually doesn't really make any sense. The idea that cholesterol is bad for us when it makes up 60% of our brain Honestly, frankly, is just absurd. It really is. Um, of course, we mentioned satiety, palatability, you know, the, uh, the, the benefit of food there. Um, now, lipoprotein profiles, I want to just mention this very briefly. 
Um, there are studies out there that suggest that replacing saturated fats with carbohydrates or certain types of polyunsaturated fats might not actually improve your lipoprotein profiles. Lipoprotein is, is basically what carries the cholesterol in the bloodstream. So like LDL, for example, it's not cholesterol. It's actually a lipoprotein which carries cholesterol with it. Um, in some cases, uh, saturated fats can actually increase the levels of HDL, the quote-unquote good cholesterol. And uh, in, interestingly, you know, studies like the Sydney Heart Trial, for example, they showed that substitution of saturated fat for linoleic acid. So they took out saturated fat from their diet and they put in omega-6 linoleic acid, uh, basically actually caused more problems. And this is just it's unbelievable. This was basically hidden for so long. Uh, you can see here I've got a study. So uh, this, this study, Saturated Fats and Health, a reassessment and proposal for food-based recommendations. So meat contains high amounts of saturated fat and so of course is absolutely demonized. But saturated fat comes in loads of forms. I'll put a link in the description for this article and basically it just goes into you know loads of different types of fats and where they come from, saturated fats and so on. Now, unsaturated fat, we're told is good for us. But is that the case? Hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Unsaturated fat, polyunsaturates, monounsaturates, we're told that these are very good for us, mostly based on the idea that they can actually lower our LDL cholesterol. Because LDL cholesterol is thought, going back to the diet hard hypothesis, that this is a bad thing. Now, it's really not, but this is the prevailing theory, unfortunately, still, despite loads of evidence to the contrary. Uh, this isn't actually a good thing necessarily to reduce people's LDL cholesterol. Now, I mean, recently on Twitter, I saw someone going on about, you know, we should all have the LDL cholesterol of a baby and that this is somehow normal for adults. And the only possible way to get to a normal LDL cholesterol is to take statins, to take medications. You know, this doctor was publicly saying the only way to be normal was to take drugs. I mean, like, can you can you just like how does that even make any sense whatsoever? It just absolutely baffles me. But I see this day in, day out. You know, I actually saw I had a patient very, very recently. Their LDL cholesterol was like less than one. I'm surprised they're even walking around. Their muscles just they were they just felt like absolute garbage. Their memory was shot. They just had no idea what was going on. Terrible energy levels, brain fog, their libido was in the in the boots, like just absolutely terrible, all because of this low LDL cholesterol level. Because they've been told by everybody, jack it down as much as possible, lower it as much as possible at all costs, because otherwise you're going to get heart disease. Regardless of the treatment that it's actually, the problems it's giving you, don't care about those. No, just have a life of just terrible misery. But as long as your LDL cholesterol is down, then everything's fine. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. We know that low level of LDL, it really very much contributes, very strongly associated with conditions like dementia, for example. And yet we're told we just must drive down LDL cholesterol all the time. It's absolutely just balmy. It really is. Uh, borderline criminal, if you ask me, to be quite honest with you. I know that's a bold statement to make, but it really is. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about omega-3 and omega-6. We have to account for these. We have to understand what's going on with them. Both of these are polyunsaturated essential fatty acids, but these are not the same. And we don't necessarily want them in the same amounts. 
the ideal ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 is around about 1 to 2. Now, this is actually very hard to achieve in reality because omega-6 is present in pretty much everything in pretty high quantities for the most part. Um, interestingly, though, red meat is actually very low on the whole in omega-6, although pork and chicken can actually be higher. Uh, omega-3 is a lot harder to come by than omega-6, as I've said. The main ones, excuse me, are EPA and DHA. DHA is almost, almost impossible to get on without animal sources. Like you basically have to eat meat to get DHA, with a slight caveat. The only way you can consume DHA if you're not eating meat is to eat algae. I think, I'm not sure if it's all algae or just, I think there's like one or two varieties of algae or basically take pills, which is DHA is just derived from the algae. DHA is absolutely essential for brain development and amongst other things, of course. And without meat, it's very, very, very hard to get DHA levels to adequate levels. Now, I know what people out there are going to say, well, the body can convert ALA, alpha-linoleic acid, which is another omega-3, to DHA. Yes, it can. It absolutely can. But in very low levels. And that's the way that a lot of things work in the body. Yes, your body can produce it. Will it produce the right amounts? Not necessarily. Will it produce enough? No. It will produce the bare minimum. And that's often how things work in the body. So just because it can make DHA from ALA doesn't mean it's going to be a decent amount. It's often actually insufficient to maintain that proper brain function. Now, let's talk a little bit about protein. So meat is a lot more than just protein, but of course, protein is a huge part of what makes up meat. But let's just break it down a little bit further. What actually is protein? So protein is a macronutrient that's essential for growth and repair, maintenance of tissues in the body, for example. It's comprised of a lot of smaller units all attached together called amino acids. Now, these are often referred to as the building blocks of protein, and there's 20 different amino acids that can combine in various ways, of course, to form all these different proteins in our body. Proteins play a crucial role in the body, a wide range of functions, including structural support. Uh, they provide structural support to cells, tissues, organs. They form the framework for muscles, bones, tendons, ligaments, skin, other connective tissues. Um, enzymes, like basically every enzyme in the body is a uh, is a protein, and uh, a lot of proteins are enzymes, which usually, you know, are catalysts. They facilitate all these biochemical reactions going on in the body. Enzymes are pretty much involved in everything going on in the body, digestion, metabolism, cellular energy production, I mean, pretty much everything. Uh, transport and storage, I mentioned lipoproteins. So these are proteins that are carrying the fat. Um, proteins act as transport molecules, such as, you know, hemoglobin is a protein carrying oxygen, of course, in the red blood cells. Lipoproteins, sorry, we mentioned already, of course, as well. Um, some of them store essential substances. Like iron is basically stored as ferritin. Amino acids can be stored as albumin, for example. Um, protein also supports our immune system function. Antibodies are specialized proteins that play a vital role in the immune system's defense against foreign substances, as I'm sure people know, you know, pathogens, infections, and so on. 
Hormones, we mentioned those of course already, but certain proteins can act as hormones, again regulating various physiological processes within our body. Uh, for example, insulin, growth hormone, cortisol, these are all proteins. Uh, cell signaling, as I mentioned earlier, of course, fats involved in this, but also proteins can be involved in, I mean, the list just goes on, it really does. Uh, cell signaling and of course, muscle contraction, muscle proteins such as actin and myosin, going back to medical school days, these enable muscle contraction and movement, of course, absolutely essential. Um, what are amino acids though? So these are the building blocks of proteins, as we said, these are organic compounds composed of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, along with, of course, some other elements. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's 20 different amino acids found in proteins, and those can be classified into two categories, essential and non-essential. Pretty straightforward. Uh, essential amino acids, they, these are the ones that the body cannot produce so it absolutely must be obtained through the diet and there are nine get that right nine essential amino acids and these are histidine isoleucine leucine lysine methionine phenylalanine threonine tryptophan and valine now, non-essential amino acids, these are, there are 11 non-essential amino acids. These can be synthesized by the body or from other, you know, parts of the body and so on. So they're not considered essential, though it's still a good idea to get them in your diet. Uh, alanine, arginine, asparginine, aspartic acid, cysteine, glutamic acid, glutamate or glutamine, uh, glycine, proline, serine, and tyrosine. 11. Um, now these, bizarrely, sometimes whilst they're non-essential they can actually become what they call conditionally essential under certain circumstances like such as your illness stress specific psychological conditions for example they actually pretty much become essential within the body which means we have to get them in the diet because we can't make them in enough quantities as i've said this is the way that the body works sometimes uh, amino acids are all linked together to form these what we call polypeptides. Uh, through peptide bonds, these then interact with each other to create these functional proteins with different shapes and structures and, of course, functions within the body. Um, amino acids don't just serve, though, as the, the building blocks for protein. They also play other roles within the body. They can be used for energy production, neurotransmitter synthesis, hormone regulations, immune system functions. Uh, I mean, just the list goes on. Um, for a protein to be considered a complete protein, now this is important, it needs to contain all nine essential amino acids in sufficient quantities for human life. Very, very important. There are very few plant sources that do this. Almost all, so not all, but almost all complete proteins are from animals. Of the plant sources, because to be fair, let's talk about them. Quinoa, buckwheat, soy, ugh, chia seeds, sorry, hemp seeds, and corn, all of these contain very, very high levels of plant toxins like oxalates, aflatoxins, phytoestrogens, uh, lectins, of course, as well. These can cause significant damage to our bodies. They're also just absolutely chocked full of these anti-nutrients, like we said, you know, oxalates, lectins, and so on, that either block or somehow interfere with the absorption of other nutrients, hence the name anti-nutrients. Uh, they also can uh, cause leaky gut syndrome and other issues there, of course, affecting our absorption. Uh, buckwheat, 
for example, contains very high levels of these what we call protease enzyme inhibitors. Now, gluten is also similar to this as well. Um, what these do is they block, the inhibitors block or inhibit the action of these protease enzymes. Now, you might ask, well, what's a protease enzyme? I'll tell you. Protease enzymes are, what they do is they break down and digest protein. So if you put an A's on the end of it, it makes it means that you're breaking it down or you know digesting it. So protease is protein A's. If you're blocking the function of protease, you basically can't actually digest or break down that protein. So even if it is actually a complete protein, you've got all these protease inhibitors as part of that package, so to speak. So whilst you eat the buckwheat and you say, oh, well, this is great because it's a complete protein, a, a large part of that protein you can't actually access because these protease inhibitors are actually blocking your ability to actually break down that protein. Now, it doesn't block it entirely, but it's vastly reducing it. And we see this in, in bread and so on. You know, it says, oh, like 15, 15 grams of protein per loaf or whatever. But actually, only about 1% of that maybe is actually bioavailable because most of it's gluten anyway, which isn't bioavailable to humans. And of that, then most of that is actually what is available is actually being affected by these protease inhibitors. So you're basically getting almost no protein from the bread you actually think you're getting protein from. And protein bread isn't even much better for that. Now, meat, of course, doesn't contain these toxins. Meat doesn't have aflatoxins. It doesn't have oxalates. It doesn't have lectins and these other protease inhibitors and so on because they don't need them. These things are chemical defenses designed to stop you eating the plants. Animals don't have that. So when you eat a complete protein from an animal, you're getting the complete protein. You don't, unless you eat it in a sandwich, you know, in a buckwheat sandwich, for example, with a little soy sauce or something, you know, you're getting that complete protein. So actually, when you, you're getting it, it's a real complete protein. Now, this is a big issue because protein deficiency causes a lot of problems. You know, protein energy malnutrition. Um, this is a really funny one. Inadequate intake of essential amino acids actually contributes to malnutrition, which is really interesting. Um, this basically, you know, leads to muscle wasting, of course, uh, weight loss, weakened immune function, impaired growth and development, uh, especially in, in kids. Um, impaired muscle growth and repair, of course, amino acids, particularly the essential ones, of course, are crucial for muscle growth, repair, maintenance. Insufficient intake in these definitely results in muscle weakness, loss of muscle mass, delayed recovery from injuries or exercise. You know, people will tell you, you get like DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness from the gym. You go and take some amino acids, it gets better almost instantly. Uh, weak immune system. Uh, amino acids, of course, play an absolutely vital role in our immune system, um, which of course is very, very important. We mentioned wound healing already earlier. So lack of amino acids will result in uh, will result rather in impaired wound healing hormonal imbalances neurological problems uh, amino acids actually this is an important one such as tryptophan uh, tyrosine phenylalanine these are all really important precursors which means they're the, the bit that comes before uh, neurotransmitters so they essentially made up into neurotransmitters uh, like things like serotonin uh, dopamine norepinephrine these are really important that we have these. Inadequate intake of these amino acids can adversely affect our brain function, mood regulation, and cognitive performance. 
Um, now, of course, most people probably know out there, you probably heard of SSRIs, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or so-called you know, antidepressants or so-called happy pills, people say. What we're trying to do there is actually increase the amount of serotonin in the brain. Now, there's other ones like SNRIs, you know, selective nor norepinephrine, you know, noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors as well. Excuse me, sorry. Um, and you may have heard of things like dopamine, you know, as far as Parkinson's and so on. If we're not getting adequate amino acid intake, we're not getting the building blocks for these things that we're trying to increase in mood disorders like depression and anxiety and issues like Parkinson's. You know, these medications, are they even going to work? Because we're not actually even having the building blocks. It, it, you know, it's crazy. Um, maybe this is why we see uh, evidence rates of things like depression, you know, mood disorders that much higher in vegetarians and vegans, for example. I, I apologize, by the way, if anybody can hear my baby screaming in the background. We've got a, a newborn and uh, my wife's doing her very best to try and calm him down. Um, of course, impaired nutrient absorption, I kind of alluded to this already, but really interestingly, when you have a low level of amino acids, you actually can get lower absorption of other things actually in the diet, which is absolutely fascinating, which of course can then lead to other nutritional deficiencies, not just the amino acids. What are some other benefits of meat though? You can read on the screen, of course, but iron, B12, zinc, B3, B6, selenium. Now, basically, let's talk about B12 first. The only way you can get B12 from plants is basically by fortifying them with artificial B12. So bread, for example, or cereals that have been, have B12 added to it. There's nothing, there's no B12 from plants. It just does not exist. Basically, I mean, that pretty much is the argument for me, straight off, one. Like, you, you can't lose the argument when you say the only way you can get B12 is from meat. That's just won the argument already, but let's carry on anyway. Uh, meat, of course, is a very rich source of essential vitamins and minerals, uh, overall health and well-being. Um, iron, we mentioned, of course, now most people know red meat is an excellent source of iron. Um, iron is absolutely crucial mineral involved uh, in so much within the body, mainly, of course, hemoglobin, carrying oxygen around our blood. Um, also plays a vital role in energy production and immune system. You ask anyone who's got iron deficiency, they'll pretty much tell you I get ill all the time. You ask anyone who's ill all the time, they've probably got iron deficiency. Um, iron from animal sources, you may or may not know this, is what we call heme iron. Now, heme iron is much more easily absorbed compared to non-heme iron, which comes from plant sources. Heme iron also does not require high levels of vitamin C to be absorbed, whereas non-heme iron from plants does. Uh, zinc, so meat, particularly red meat, of course, is a significant source of zinc as well. And zinc is absolutely essential for various functions within the body. Again, zinc deficiency is a big problem when it comes to the immune system, wound healing, DNA synthesis, growth and development, I mean, you name it plays a vital role in maintaining healthy skin, hair, nails, I mean, so much. Um, inadequate levels of zinc we see almost always associated with things like insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, high stress levels like cortisol being high, and very poor levels of sex hormones. Uh, vitamin B12, of course, we mentioned, is only found in animal meat. You cannot find it in plants, absolute zero, zip, nothing, unless it's been artificially added, and then it's an artificial B12. Uh, B12, of course, is absolutely essential for human life. 
without B12, you basically will die. So, I mean, like I said, that basically makes the argument for me just very easy. Uh, but B12 is essential for neurological function. Uh, if you have B12 deficiency, you can get what we call dorsal column in the spine degeneration, um, formation of red blood cells, of course, uh, DNA synthesis, energy metabolism, you know, and so on. Uh, niacin, uh, vitamin B3 or vitamin B3, um, particularly poultry, uh, but meat, uh, you know, generally is very good. Excuse me, sorry, for uh, for niacin. Uh, vitamin B3 or niacin is essential for energy production, proper functioning of the digestive system, and maintaining healthy skin. It plays a role, actually, in regulating cholesterol levels. So if you are, for whatever reason, wanting to reduce your LDL cholesterol, you could actually take vitamin B3. Uh, if you're wanting to increase your HDL cholesterol, you could also take vitamin B3. Uh, vitamin B3 also, interestingly, is a very potent uh, vasodilator, which, if you'll excuse the pun, can have a very sizable effect on erections, uh, improve libido orgasms, both male and female, and general sexual health, basically, uh, as well as peripheral circulation can be improved with vitamin B3. Uh, I actually very often recommend it to men who are struggling with erections, actually, uh, and it usually works. Uh, vitamin B6, uh, meat such as beef, you know, pork, poultry, of course, uh, these are very good sources of vitamin B6, which again is involved in lots of things within the body, enzyme reactions, brain development, immune system, protein metabolism, red blood cell production, I mean, you name it, and of course, selenium. Meat, particularly seafood in this case, but also organ meats, very high in selenium. Typically, although in Australia, it can be a bit on the low side, Excuse me. Selenium is an essential trace mineral with antioxidant properties, and it helps protect cells from damage, supports thyroid function, and plays a vital role in our immune system. Let's get a little bit more into the nitty gritty. What about gut health and meat? So, consuming meat can influence the composition and diversity of the gut microbiome, which refers to the community of microorganisms residing in the digestive tract. Now, that's you know, basically the standard you know, kind of uh, spiel. Um, here's some ways, of course, that meat could potentially affect the microbiome of the gut. So it can increase the biotolerant microbes. So animal-based diets, including meat consumption, have been associated with an increase in biotolerant microbes within the gut. This is because bile acids produced in the, by the liver, sorry, released into the small intestine, usually via the gallbladder, uh, aids in fat digestion and so can promote the growth of certain bacteria that are tolerant of bile. Now, we don't know if that's a bad thing or not. So, uh, shift in microbial metabolism. So, the consumption of meat can affect the metabolic activities of the gut microbiome, microbiota. For instance, high, uh, meat contains high levels of amino acids, which can serve as substrates for microbial fermentation or digestion. This can lead to changes in those metabolites, such as short-chain fatty acids, which can influence gut health, but mostly these are actually very good for us. Uh, TMAO, let's talk about TMAO. So I'll come back to that in a moment, but the impact of TMAO production, certain components of meat or found in meat, such as choline and carnitine, and choline is quite high in eggs, that's why they tell us not to eat eggs as well, can be metabolized by gut bacteria to produce this compound called TMA, trimethylamine. 
Now, TMA can then be converted by the liver into trimethylamine and oxide, which is TMAO. Now, TMAO has been associated with worsening cardiovascular outcomes. However, the relationship between meat consumption and TMAO production has never been proved. And it's an ongoing area of research and debate. Now, basically, that means there is no proof that actually consuming red meat increases TMAO production in the human body. But we'll come back to that. Uh, the effects on the microbial diversity. Uh, some studies have suggested that long-term adherence to a high, high meat, low-fiber diet could be associated with reduced microbial diversity in the gut. Now, the general spiel is that a diverse microbiome is generally considered beneficial for overall health and is associated with better digestion, nutrient absorption, and immune function. Now, the problem with that is nobody knows what a good microbiome actually is. There's a lot of assumptions when it comes to these things. Nobody actually knows. And anyone that tells you they know what a good microbiome is, is actually probably just lying because we actually don't really know. We know there are some bad things that we don't want there, but we actually don't really know what is the essential microbiome. So we do have to take that in mind. Just going back a little bit to the nutrient absorption, immune function, and digestion, you ask any carnivore They'll tell you they feel the best they've ever felt. Their gut is the best it's ever been. They're very rarely deficient in anything. And their immune system is usually just absolutely incredible. So again, is that a bad thing to have a reduced diversity? Maybe, maybe not. All right, let's come back to TMAO. Uh, almost done. So TMAO uh, stands for, as I said, trimethylamine N-oxide. And you can see the slide on the screen. Uh, this is a small organic molecule that is produced in the body as a result of certain metabolic processes. So TMAO is formed from TMA, trimethylamine, which is generated by the gut bacteria, as I said, during digestion of certain elements like choline, betaine, and carnitine, which are commonly found in red meat, fish, eggs, and dairy products. TMAO has gained a lot of attention in recent years because of its potential implications for human health, particularly cardiovascular disease. There is research that suggests that elevated levels of TMAO in the blood can be associated with an increased risk of certain conditions, as we mentioned, like cardiovascular disease. It's thought that TMAO might contribute to the development of atherosclerosis, which is a condition characterized by the accumulation of fatty deposits in the arteries. However, as we said, this is an area of ongoing research. Now, that's the standard kind of gumph, that's the standard spiel, but let's just unpick that a little bit. TMAO is all the rage right now. It's basically being used as you know, ammunition against, uh, against red meat and against fat and so on, and this crusade by World Health Organization and you know Bill Gates and other people out there, basically people standing to profit, of course, uh, this crusade to get everyone to eat you know, go vegan, eat plant-based, eat all these fake meats, beyond meat, etc. Um, actually, as a side note, it's kind of hilarious that a lot of these fake meat companies are actually being sued by their investors by for faking profits. But anyway, that's uh, I digress. Um, what all these studies, you know, won't tell you is that there's actually a vital piece of information that's actually missing. So, TMAO could potentially cause heart disease. Tick. Yes, it could. 
TMAO can be produced when bacteria digest certain nutrients like choline, betaine, and carnitine. Yes, tick, fine. Red meat, eggs, fish, etc. contain these nutrients. Yes, they do, absolutely, tick, no problem there. Therefore, red meat and eggs cause heart disease. No, that's wrong. There's a vital step missing here, and that's, does red meat actually produce high levels of TMAO in human beings? We don't know. The answer is nobody knows. Now, I, to my knowledge, this has never actually been studied. Does actual red meat, not meat consumption, you know, they take people eating like McDonald's, you know, 24-7 and say, oh, you know, what's your TMAO levels? To my knowledge, there's no studies actually looking at TMAO production in someone who is eating proper red meat, like a steak. Where is those studies? Please, if anyone out there is, is watching or listening to this that knows a study, please send it to me. I would love to read it. To my knowledge, these studies don't exist. Now, the alternative explanation is they do exist, but they've never been published. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but that's certainly possible. I don't see how it would be that difficult to do a study because they, we, we can measure TMAO levels. And, you know, they do it for like, they, they give them burgers and stuff, you know, like, you know, McDonald's burgers and then say, well, what's your TMAO levels? Oh, they went up. Okay, fine. Why can't they do that with a steak? It's pretty simple, pretty simple study. They're doing it with a burger. Why can't they do it with a steak? I would probably guess that they have done these studies, but they just don't want to publish them because my guess is they don't actually show that they raise your body's TMAO levels. And that just completely destroys the argument that red meat is bad for us. So they probably have done them. They just aren't published, most likely. So uh, basically that, yeah, it's completely fake. You know, they're telling you that, uh, you know, TMAO levels will go up when you eat red meat, but they're not telling you, what they're not telling you is these people are eating really high sugar diets, fast food, takeaways, absolute garbage. And then they just say, oh, well, you know, they ate meat. So, you know, red, red meat causes cancer. Red meat, red meat's TMAO and it causes bowel cancer. I mean, it's absolute garbage. It absolutely is. At best, it's misleading, um, an awful methodology and just bad study. At worst, it's intentionally misleading and just basically lies. So if you can't show that a, like red meat, like a steak or an actual egg by itself causes TMAO to rise, then you can't say that red meat causes TMAO levels to rise. It's, that's it. You just can't say it. It's also really unlikely. Okay, bear in mind, TMAO is produced by, by mostly colon, colonic bacteria. It's very unlikely that any meat will actually get to the colon or very, very, very little. You ask any carnivore how much they poo, almost nothing. There's almost nothing coming out. Now that meat is not being digested really in, in the colon. That's, it's being digested before the colon. Hardly anything's actually getting to the colon. You know, beef and eggs are almost 100% bioavailable. There's almost nothing left for the bacteria in the colon to actually digest and produce TMAO from. So again, like, does this actually make any sense? 
If we go back again to James Salisbury, I was mentioning him earlier, of course, his Salisbury stakes, his idea was basically to let the bowel rest as much as humanly possible. These people almost had literally nothing coming out of their bowels. Literally nothing. They just wouldn't even poo because the, the idea was they literally had nothing coming out. He took out all of the like the meat fiber, the connective tissue, everything. And basically, they just didn't really poo. Now, if they're not pooing, that means nothing's actually getting into the colon. If nothing's getting into the colon, how do you have meat that can then be converted into TMAO? It doesn't actually make sense. TMAO production is also predicated on the idea that we have this pathogenic gut bacteria. But this is actually far more likely to be present in someone on a terrible diet. For example, the standard American, standard Western diet. There's really no evidence at all that anyone consuming a clean, healthy, additive-free, chemical-free, toxin-free carnivore diet will have high levels of these bacteria in their gut and therefore high levels of TMAO. And this is where the science absolutely falls flat on its face. They won't tell you these things. They hide behind these scary headlines that red meat causes bowel cancer, red meat causes heart disease, red meat causes TMAO to try and scare you into reducing your red meat consumption because probably they're trying to sell the fake meats. So thank you guys for listening. This has been a little bit of a long talk, but I hope it's been useful talking about uh, why meat is important. Uh, I believe I've provided a comprehensive overview of the benefits of meat consumption, including the importance, of course, of protein and essential vitamins, minerals like iron, zinc, B12, and of course, fat. Now, of course, it goes against the very commonly held belief that meat and saturated fat is bad for your health, but I've openly explained, you know, why that might not be the case and the benefits of these. Hopefully, I've managed to address some of the concerns around meat consumption, like gut health, TMAO production, and of course, highlighting some of the limitations of the current research and the potential for misleading information. Uh, I've obviously spoke about the key, you know, nutrients found in meat, of course, and I've shown you the importance of incorporating meat into your diet. And I've also addressed the misconception, of course, that saturated fat is bad for us by showing that it can actually have enormous benefits. Of course, we spoke about TMAO production. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, hopefully you guys are all now free to enjoy red meat without any major concerns around cardiovascular disease, bowel cancer, heart disease, as I said, TMAO production and all this other nonsense that they tell you. Again, ask them to show you the studies. Show you the study that shows a steak gives you heart disease, a steak gives you bowel cancer, a steak gives you TMAO. They can't because that research doesn't exist. They hide behind these other headlines like, you know, just meat causes cancer, but they include all this garbage food within that. There's no evidence anyone on a really high quality, clean carnivore diet actually gets these problems. There really isn't. Anyway, guys, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Meat Medic Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today on why meat is essential for the human diet. Thank you very much for listening. If you've got any comments, questions or comments, look, pop them in the comments, of course. Otherwise, I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for this. Li thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat Medic Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help to spread the word that how, how we can improve mental and physical health through diet and nutrition. If you are in interested in improving your own... Okay, let's just re-record that. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meet Medic Podcast. If you found this episode useful, please leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really does help out the channel to grow. If you have found this useful and you want to improve your physical and mental health further, please do check out my website, themeetmedic.com, where you can find all my eBooks are currently 50% off with the code 50 off. That's code 50 off, five zero off, O-double-F, for 50% off all eBooks. Take care. Thank you. See you in the next episode.